Hello, honeys, and happy Thursday. I hope you're all having a wonderful December so far. Hopefully you're not too deep in those seasonal blues and prepared for the holidays, which are either here already or upcoming. Today we are going to continue with our Myths of Art History series. We're going to move on to the second one, the myth of the starving artist. We will be talking about how this legend came to be, what it looks like in the present, and how we can successfully debunk this one. So, as always, we're going to start with our sources, but I am excited to dive into this one with you guys and hope that we can make it kind of fun here by going through not only some of the societal means of perpetuating these myths, but also by covering some surprising examples of artists who perpetuate this myth. Especially with so many individual artist examples, we've got quite an extensive source list this week, so bear with me here. I'll go as quickly as I can. The Abundant Artist post 12 Things All Starving Artists Believe from December of 2009. Celine Costa's The Truth About Starving Artists and How You Can Avoid This Trap from Forbes Magazine in September 2020. Jeff Goins's The Myth of the Starving Artist and Other Misconceptions About Creativity from Medium Magazine in May 2017. Miranda M. Miles Jackson's Overcoming the Myth of the Contemporary Starving Artist an exploration into the fusion and viability of a 21st century career in art and design, uh, which was a master's thesis completed in December of 2020. Allison Keene's 10 Cultural Giants Who Died Coinless from Mental Floss in June of 2011. Hannah Lewis's Romanticizing the Starving Artist from Medium Magazine in March of 2017. Rembrandt's Page in the National Gallery, copyrighted 2023 and Rembrandt's page in Encyclopedia Britannica, updated in December of 2023. Allen writings, When Anguish Among Artists Became Both Respected and Expected, from the New York Times in July of 2006, and Cole Salau's Destroying the Myth of the Starving Artist in tkcpublishing.com 2022. Oh, and I also used the Wikipedia page on starving artists a little bit for general context. In order to give you the best possible mental image of exactly what a starving artist is and what that stereotype looks like in the arts and beyond, I'm going to paint you a little mental picture, all puns intended. Wikipedia and Salau alike both agree that, quote, a starving artist is an artist who sacrifices material well-being in order to focus on their artwork. They typically live on minimum expenses, either for a lack of business or because all their disposable income goes towards art projects, aka a character that exemplifies an artist who pursues their passion regardless of consequences, like to the point of financial instability. Over time, this has become a widely popular stereotype and even at times a sort of standard for perceived dedication to one's craft. In order to make that picture as clear as possible, I thought it'd be great to have a meta moment 
and incorporate from that uh, Abundant Artist blog the commonly observed traits and or mindsets of starving artists, aka the internal myths of a starving artist. First, that suffering makes one a better artist. Next, that money is evil, slash a tool, slash a disease, slash etc. Three, a lack of defensiveness against selling out. Four, one day my break will come. AKA a unreasonable belief in their own success. A, a sort of I don't need training or education often paired with a my relation, friend, mentor, etc. thinks I'm amazing already kind of mindset, an imbalance in the amount of time spent making art and the amount of time spent on any other productive work, and finally, either being too picky about jobs and commissions or not picky enough. Of course, we want to be fair, and so we can argue that the starving artist status is less of a choice and more of a result of chance and just the general conditions of a career in the arts. Both of the above sources, as well as others, note that the financial disempowerment that an artist may face might even be related to the high cost barriers of entry into fine arts, films, etc., including the cost of equipment, which certainly can get mind-bogglingly pricey. First Art Gallery especially notes, quote, artistic success very rarely comes easily, and the number of artistic prodigies who achieved immediate success is greatly exceeded by the number of artists who struggled for years and years before earning any recognition for their talents, end quote. Lewis does a nice job of summarizing the myth as quote, a widespread belief that people who decide to pursue art as a career are doomed to be impoverished and unsuccessful, end quote. Which is true, that is a belief. However, it's not necessarily grounded in reality, as we will talk about later. Writing especially points to the myth's origins and strongest influences coming from the Bohemian and Romantic eras. So with the Romantic movement came this shift in artists' own ideas of their purpose, what their status and norms of being artists ought to be. So the figure of the starving artist really embodies this transition from the artist's desires to have academic status, social respectability, to their desires for self-knowledge their anti-socialism, their emphasis on being one with nature. And this included an emphasis on self-pleasure rather than on inspiring joy in the public. It often generally came with an attitude of rebellion against institutions, and artists of this sort insisted on their uniqueness. They often formed cliques and, according to writing, quote, savored their own melancholy, end quote. As Goins puts it, 
the main idea of these artists was basically to, quote, make art for art's sake, end quote, not just for money. Hence their title, Starving Artists. So this type of artist figure then becomes a sort of pop culture figure which evolves into the myth we know today. And that pop culture figure was often a tragic Dickensian sort, especially popular in the late 18th through the early 19th centuries in romantic paintings and literature. So some examples include playwright Henry Mugger's 1851 Scenes de la Vie de la Bohème and a later opera La Bohème by Puccini and Leon Cavallo based on the book. Hunger, an 1890 novel starring a starving artist protagonist by Nut Hampson, and Franz Kafka's 1922 short story, A Hunger Artist, which was about a fasting performance artist who was seeking fame for his work. Some shifts in the visual arts, especially artists' own self-portraits, also describe the change from the academic to the romantic artist. In so doing, they capture the broke, bohemian sort of lifestyle of the starving artist. For example, Joshua Reynolds's 1779 through 80 self-portrait, he's standing next to a bust of Michelangelo, he's wearing a Rembrandt-style beret and the Oxford honorary doctorate gowns. It's very clear he wants to be an academy man. So, quote, he was still desperate to impress the establishment. Yet within a few years, artists seem more interested in portraying themselves as intense, reflective, lonely, even unhappy individuals, end quote. As an example of Caspar David Friedrich, alone in his studio with some of his arts materials, shows. Ultimately, as writing says, quote, by the late 19th century, while some artists like Manet, Whistler, and Audrey Beardsley showed off their importance by dressing as dandies, others were consumed by the sheer martyrdom of being an artist, end quote. There was actually some decently reliable evidence on Wikipedia, however, to demonstrate that some chose poverty as an alternative lifestyle in addition to choosing art careers. So the quote goes, Virginia Nicholson writes in Among the Bohemians, Experiments in Living, 1900 through 1939, 50 years on, we may judge that Dylan Thomas's poverty was noble, while Nina Hamnett's was senseless. But a minor artist with no money goes as hungry as a genius. What drove them to do it? I believe that such people were not only choosing art, they were choosing the life of an artist. Art offered them a different way of living, one that they believed more than compensated for the loss of comfort and respectability, end quote. However, I did not find any evidence of uh, choice really being much of a factor outside of that one Wikipedia quote, so that may be, that may only apply to a select handful throughout history. Moving on from the origins, There are a number of things that perpetuate this myth, one of which is its popular depiction throughout all sorts of mediums, film, TV, books, theater, artworks, so on. 
This can create generally one of two results, either discouragement away from an arts career or a romantic idealization of the sort of financial suffering that becomes expected with an artistic career. Rioting actually notes that there's a sort of dual-sidedness to this uh, perpetuation of the starving artist myth that comes from social context as well. Writing says, quote, Now, a century later, while individual artists still have to struggle, the artist's status is secure. Yet, to this day, there remains the expectation that the artist, and that covers music, literature, and cinema, will be obsessive, moody, insecure, nonconformist. And if he, and now also she, behaves badly, forgiveness is assured. The fact is that, whether they are shocking or self-important, antisocial or entertaining, or even if they prefer to be celebrities over rebels and martyrs, we still want our artists to be different. We want to believe they are blessed with some mystical gift, and for that enviable state of grace, they can thank their romantic forebears, end quote. So though the popular figure of the romantic kind of era starving artist has certainly evolved, a lot of that idealization lingers throughout our culture. Oftentimes, the representation of the starving artist myth in pop culture relies on the use of an unhelpful binary, which can also perpetuate stereotypes about all sorts of artists. And this binary is the quote-unquote sellout figure versus the quote-unquote purist starving artist figure. And more often than not, there's a ton of derision directed towards that former, the quote-unquote sellout, especially parallel to the relatively celebrated starving artist examples. So what this can show us is that the starving artist myth really to this day relies a lot on the romantic, antisocial, and anti- money stances and ideals. This can have the unfortunate effect of making artists think that they can't take money too seriously when the fact is that, you know, people still need to make an income. In fact, Goins says, quote, what I think we all fear is not discovery of or compensation for our work. But I think that we creatives are afraid that in caring too much about marketing or business, we will somehow lose the purity of our art. And that's a valid concern, but not an entirely rational one, end quote. Another big perpetuator of the starving artist myth is the financial realities or perceptions about financial realities of working in the arts. It is true that there's not guaranteed success in this field. As one arts management director once famously said, you can't necessarily play a symphony faster or paint any faster, yet the costs of putting on such shows necessarily rise over time. So 
there is to some degree a misconception of the profitability and or poorness of various arts organizations because it can be very hard to keep up with inflation and that sort of thing in the cost of their programming. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they are in dire straits, every one of them, at all times. In all fairness, however, there really is a ton of inherent instability in the arts field because arts sales, whether that be in terms of tickets, paintings, however, depend on such a wide number of factors. For example, the stability of financial markets, the personal interests and tastes of individual customers, the availability of non-governmental or even governmental funding for various endeavors, and so on and so forth. Salau recognizes this by saying really effectively, quote, Earnings can vary wildly, with many artists earning very high or very low salaries. You might find yourself earning a lot one month, but seeing no work the next. There are times that you might even work for free to build a portfolio or gain experience, end quote. What is interesting, though, especially in regards to perception, is that Lewis found in multiple surveys that they conducted that most participants have contradictory negative outlooks on the success of art careers compared to the fact that every single one of them also knew at least one successful artist personally. Now, what that result tells us is that this cultural belief in the starving artist is really set deep, despite lots of even personal evidence which opposes it. Lewis concludes that, quote, people want to believe in art careers despite negative connotations around them because the stereotype of the starving artist has been deeply romanticized throughout history, end quote. So problematically, the starving artist has become something of a standard for the level of dedication that one is willing to give to one's art. And really kind of sets the stage in a lot of people's mind for their rise to success. It's almost like one must be a starving artist before one can become great. And based on how many real-life examples I saw where that's exactly the story, seems true. The path to debunking this particular myth seems pretty simple and straightforward. We have to stop celebrating the pieces of it one by one, starting with no longer romanticizing the obscurity and suffering, especially financially, of artists as a part of their greatness, especially. As Goins puts it, quote, art does not have to be obscure to be meaningful, end quote. And also, I think a little bit more effectively, quote, you do not have to be poor to be creative, end quote. So really, we need to remember that several studies have proven that this is a 
pop culture, especially literary, originated myth and is outdated. It is a specifically romantic attitude that is, you know, really just a, a leftover at this point and not applicable anymore. We have to recognize that artists can and should care about marketing, which should be publicly acceptable, so long as they care as much about their art, because how else are they going to sell it and thus earn a living? Duh. (laughs) Artists can and should make money, which, again, should be publicly acceptable so long as their art does not decrease in quality or meaning because of it. Again, as Goins puts it so shortly, succinctly, and beautifully, quote, money makes a better means than a master, end quote. So essentially, we really just need to support artists financially even before they become great and stop sort of consoling ourselves with this idea that that poverty, that struggle will make them all the better. And that's all well and good, but now let's get back to the fun stuff. Specific examples of starving artists from real life. Number one, Johannes Vermeer. He was a very, very famous Dutch painter but he worked notoriously slowly and built up massive debts. His patrons were kind of cheap, and he didn't really haggle all that well, and having 11 kids probably did not help his financial situation. He died at 43, leaving his family in debt, and was so unprofitable during his lifetime that after his death, his paintings were sold as other artists, like... They literally painted over his name and put other signatures on it. And it wasn't until several centuries later that he became recognized as an artist, much less a quite notable one. All in all, Vermeer only lived from 1632 through 1675. Perhaps the most famous of all the starving artists is Rembrandt. He lived from 1606 to 1669, was a Dutch artist, and though his death as a starving artist is a pretty popular, well-known art historical fact and legend, the reasons for it are more complex than are commonly given credit, so let's dive in a little bit. Rembrandt, being such a great artist as he was, I think was a surprise for many of his contemporaries when he died as a starving artist. As Britannica puts it, quote, One of the greatest storytellers in the history of art, possessing an exceptional ability to render people in their various moods and dramatic guises, Rembrandt is also known as a painter of light and shade and as an artist who favored an uncompromising realism that would lead some critics to claim that he preferred ugliness to beauty, end quote. So the first reason why he suffered such financial hardship is that there was just poor economic circumstances. A depression hit Amsterdam at the pretty much the peak of his career, possibly related to the Anglo-Dutch War of 1652 to 54, 
And there were also some play gears mixed in there, which were, you know, all combined to slow the art business dramatically. So Rembrandt got and accepted even fewer commissions. He was also a famous overspender. He lived beyond his means for almost his entire life and was also well known for overvaluing and overpricing his own works. The two did not make good company for his financial state. As the National Gallery nicely sums up this whole debacle, quote, In the 1650s, Amsterdam was hit by a massive economic depression. Rembrandt had not even completed half the payments on his house, and his creditors began to chase him for money. In July 1656, he successfully applied for cessio bonorum, a respectable form of bankruptcy which avoided imprisonment. All his goods, including an impressive collection of paintings, were sold off for a pittance, end quote. Britannica also puts forth the argument that he was going through an artistic crisis, and that explained a dramatic decrease in his output. They believe that it's because he maxed out the possibilities of his style and sort of oversaturated the market with his own work. And to some degree, this is supported by the greater amount of variety in his works from his later years. However, the more truthful outlook on this story is that his style might have fallen out of favor in Holland by the end of his life but his international reputation only continued to rise. And this artistic crisis could be related to the deaths of several family members during those years. It may also have to have do with his personality. He may not have been easy enough to work with for his clients. In any case, he remained highly esteemed despite this criticism through his death by his contemporaries, though he did die in abject poverty. Next up, we have Van Gogh, who, of course, is one of the most immediate and famous examples of an artist who struggled financially throughout his lifetime. However, because of his equally, if not stronger, association with the myth of madness, we're going to save him and his story for the next episode. In short, quote, Despite the fact that he is now considered a master painter with an almost immeasurable impact on art and culture, Van Gogh died penniless in 1890 at the age of 37 by his own hand, end quote. And that quote's from Mental Floss. Next up, we have William Blake, who lived 1757 to 1827. An English painter and poet, he was well known especially for his engraving illustrated poetry. He died poor and alone, though without debts, which is more than can be said for many others in similar circumstances, largely because he was one of the first in the 18th century to move into Romanticism from Rationalism, and was, of course, considered off his rocker for it. He was buried in an unmarked grave at Bun Hill Fields in 1827. Then we have Matthew Brady. Alive from 1822 to 1896, he was Blake's contemporary across the pond and became known for his crucial role as an American Civil War photographer, who was nicknamed the father of photojournalism. 
He was already an esteemed and well-established photographer before the war, partially for a portrait of Lincoln, which became used on the $5 bill. So if you've ever seen a $5 bill, you have seen a photograph of Brady's. He spent approximately $100,000 during the war, creating thousands and thousands of pictures. The problem was nobody wanted reminders, especially visual ones, of the brutality and the carnage of that particular war. So the Mental Floss article points to one of the potential reasons for this, or an exaggerating factor of this, is Brady had a very stark realism style, which was in contrast to the propaganda, the very watered-down images coming from popularly circulated printed news and their journalists. So Brady, unable to sell his pictures and recoup any losses, sinks into poverty and alcoholism. Congress buys his collection later for little under $3,000, and he eventually dies in obscurity in 1896. Then, of course, there are some non-visual examples, because the myth of the starving artist spans mediums. First up, Franz Schubert, a.k.a. the guy who wrote Ave Maria, of all people. He lived 1791 to 1828, composed a ton in his short life, and, similar to Van Gogh, went largely unappreciated during his actual lifetime. He was considered inferior to his contemporaries, like Bach, but was later redeemed especially as an influence for Brahms and Mendelssohn. These days, his uh, complexity and the beauty of his music is considered on par with Mozart. I'm not going to lie. I was really tempted to give my best effort at an Ave Maria, but you guys have had to put up with my singing once already this episode, and I'm not here to torture you for Christmas, so. And surprise, Oscar Wilde is on this list too. Living 1854 to 1900, he, unlike others in this list, sold very well and was famous throughout his lifetime, but he was a completely careless spender, and later alcoholic. His own deathbed joke, supposedly, was one about living life as he died, beyond his means. And if you were paying attention to the second to last episode we released on Edward S. Curtis, you'll remember that he too died in relative poverty, considering his vast later success with his collection, The North American Indian. Now, of course, with that many, like, eight (laughs) examples that I could find in the historical record of starving artists, it's pretty clear that, you know, there are definitely some who struggle. Many, in fact, do. However, that doesn't mean that we ought to perpetuate this myth as a sort of indirect means of creating a barrier of suffering and a barrier of financial ruin to either entry or success for artists trying to make a career in the creative fields. Like many other things in society, just because that's the way that things have 
often been in history does not mean that that's the way they have to continue to be. Alrighty, honeys, this has been our episode on the myth of the starving artist, where it came from, its very bohemian, romantic origins, how it has evolved into the present, some very famous and some very surprising examples of starving artists from the real-life records, and how we can quit perpetuating this myth in order to create a more equitable arts scene for everybody. I hope you have wonderful holidays. Stay safe. Stay warm. If you are traveling, please do so carefully. And I will talk to you all next week. Stay well, honeys. This podcast was created, produced, written, hosted, edited, and fact-checked by master's graduate Celia Bugnow. Our upcoming music will be courtesy of Kelsey Weber. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe on all of your favorite streaming platforms as well as your social media.